Genesis chapter 1. We have been studying Creation Week, and all of creation up to this point has just been merely an introduction to what the what's going to happen here on day 6. We started day 6 last week, and we see here the creation of the human race was a central object of God's creative purpose from the very beginning. Now, in an important sense, everything else was created for humanity. And every step of creation up to this point had one main purpose. It was to prepare a perfect environment for Adam, who, of course, was the first man that God created. So we've seen what's happened in the previous days of creation week. On day one, remember, the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He gave the raw materials there. And, and then on day one, God created light. On day two, God creates atmosphere around the earth. And then on day three, God is starting his process of creating this perfect environment for mankind, where God created dry land and put the vegetation and the plants on that dry land. On day four, God created the luminaries in the skies, such as the sun, moon, and the stars. On day five, God fills that sky by creating the birds and the sea creatures, so he puts, he fills the waters. We saw on day six that God filled the land by creating land animals, and he's also going to fill it by creating man. We've already talked about those animals, so if you want to hear that message, that's from last week, but I want us to see now how God creates mankind here in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Starting in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. It was so. God saw everything he had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. We see, first of all here, God created mankind, verses 26 and 27. I've got a question for you to think about before we jump into this. Why did God do this? Why did God create man? Well, the first catechism of the Westminster Catechism says it well when it asks the question, what is the chief 
and highest end of man. You'll see it on the screen here. You know what that catechism says? The answer, correct answer is, coming from the Bible, is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. So you were created to glorify God. You are to give the right opinion of God. You are to display His fame, His name, and His glory to the nations. Let's be clear. God did not need to create us. He didn't need to create mankind. Some have said God did this because He was lonely. Then you don't understand the Trinity if you say that, because the Trinity has enjoyed for all eternity perfect communion and fellowship with each other. So God did not need to create man, but yet He did create us for His own glory. You say, where's that in the Bible? Let me give you a few verses to think about. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, this is God speaking, God says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. You probably know, hopefully, 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you are here on planet Earth to bring God glory. You can do that even in mundane things of life, things such as eating and drinking and everything else you do. So God created mankind to glorify Him and to fully enjoy Him forever. And you can do that even now. This text here gives us three marks of mankind. Three marks of mankind. Number one, we see that God created mankind with greatness. With greatness. So let's, let's take a look at the greatness of humanity here. Notice verse 26 says, You and I and all every human being on planet Earth is made in God's image. Adam and Eve are set apart from the rest of creation by the fact that they are God's image bearers. And you say, well, what does that mean to be created in God's image? I'm glad you asked. Very important question. As far as I'm concerned, it's the fundamental issue behind the the moral bill that is before our parliament today. God's image in us includes... The rational, the moral, the spiritual, verbal, mental, emotional, the rational, and even physical. Let me explain all those points to you. Okay? Being made in God's image means you are rational. For example, what animal can possibly transmit an accumu- all its accumulated achievements from one generation to the other? No animals do that. But mankind does. We're also moral. What animal experiences any true sense of guilt when it does wrong? Oh, I know. You 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 might think you might try to 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 debunk all all of these. Just bear in mind that animals, yes, they are made by God, but they are not made in His image. 
Only mankind is made in his image, as it says here. You didn't see that applying to any of the other creatures that God had made. We, as mankind, have an inner sense of right and wrong. In fact, Ecclesiastes says God has even set eternity on our hearts. Uh, you might, it might appear that an animal has some sense of guilt, but they, they, it's just what they've been trained. But we're also spiritual beings. Animals don't have the desire to worship God. They don't have a hope of immortality beyond the grave because they don't have one. Only mankind is made in the image of God. You and I are more than a body. We have an immaterial spirit that is going to live forever. But we're also verbal. Uh, what animals ever learn to read and write and exhibit intelligent speech? We are able to use a complex language that sets us apart from animals. We're also mental. That's part of God's image. We have the ability to reason. We can think logically and learn that it sets us apart from the animal world. Animals do not engage in abstract reasoning. We're also emotional. We're able to feel a very wide range of emotions, and you and I can experience those all at the same time. You can be happy and sad and joyful and grieving and and, and maybe even feel hate and, and, and a list of other things all, and you can do that all at the same time. No animal can do that. You're also relational. The interpersonal harmony exists between human relationships is far greater than animals can experience. And your physical. The God-given ability to bear and raise children who are like ourselves is actually a reflection of God's own image Himself. God's own ability is that He is able, as we see here, to create human beings who are like Himself. But some have asked, well, Yes, we come to Genesis 3, though, and we see that mankind sins. So did we lose the image of God in Genesis 3 when Adam fell? The answer is no, you didn't lose the image. Uh, you are still human, but and you're certainly not an animal. But you, you retain aspects of this image, this God-given image. But we, at the same time, we need to understand the image is contaminated. It's contaminated. It is corrupted. It's not the same image that God originally gave to Adam. So what does this image talk mean for you and me? What does it mean to us? Well, it means, first of all, that I know who I am. You know who you are, if you understand this text. The crucial question that modern man faces and can't seem to answer is, Who am I? Who am I? Sadly, those who believe in evolution have lost their unique identity because they don't understand who they are. They don't know where they've come from. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. That's sad. And the reason the reason is because they've lost their unique identity is because they just think they're just a part of this random ocean of cells and atoms. But Christians... Hopefully, hopefully, if you're a Christian, you don't have this problem. 
hopefully you understand who you are. You are an image bearer of God. Christians should know who they are. Therefore, we can know why we're here. We can know where we're going. And that should give us great hope and purpose in life. But what does this image talk mean to you and me? It means I know who, not just who I am, but I know who you are. I know who you are, and therefore then I must show you respect and love. Why? Because you are a creature made in God's image. And because of that, you possess great value and purpose. And so if you think about this and understand it, this truth has profound implications for our conduct toward other people, does it not? It means that that people of, of every ethnicity in our world deserves equal dignity and rights. Just because I'm a Caucasian doesn't mean I have the right to, to make myself superior to, to anyone else with a different ethnicity. It means that, th- this applies to other things as well. It, mean, it, it means that elderly people and, and people who are seriously ill and the mentally handicapped and, and children who are yet unborn, they deserve full protection. They deserve honor because they are human beings made in God's image. We're equal. And so if we ever deny our unique status of God's image bearers, we're going to soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. And you can see it happening in our culture and in our country, can't you? It's the fundamental, basic issue. See, we tend, it, it, we're gonna, if you tend to see human beings as merely a higher form of animal, guess what? You're going to start treating them as animals. If I can euthanize, euthanize my dog, which is perfectly fine because he was suffering, then guess what? I can do that to my grandmother, too, if she's suffering, right? Do you, you see the logical progression there? But if you distinguish animals from human beings, then the animal's not made in God's image. My grandmother is. I can't treat her the same as I treat my dog. We'll also lose much of our sense of meaning in life, our our purpose. Why are we here if we don't understand this truth? So my friends, do you see that all the prejudice and the racism and so forth that goes on would actually be done away with if we actually believed what God says here in the Bible? Christians respect their fellow man because they're made in God's image. So what does this mean practically? What does this mean practically? Well, there's there's two atrocities that we need to avoid here. Number one, that we will not murder with our words. You should not murder with your words. For example, look at the screen here. James 3, verse 8 says, No human being, look, look, James 3, verse 8, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made, notice, you're made, you are made in the likeness of God. That's why you should not murder with your words. Notice that your tongue is full of deadly poison. But the second atrocity you must avoid is 
you should not murder with weapons. That's the obvious one we, we tend to think of. Look at Genesis 9, verse 6. Turn over, keep your finger here, but look at Genesis 9, verse 6. And I want you to notice why we should not murder. Because Genesis 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's why you shouldn't murder. So this is the greatness of humanity. The greatness of humanity is found in the fact that our nature reflects the nature of our Creator and our Maker in a small way. We're not exactly like Him. But we are faced with tragedy here, aren't we? Uh, We're alienated from God because of our sin. We have fallen. And so God's image, which was rational, is now fallen and we become irrational. Uh, God's image is moral, but fallen men have become immoral. Uh, the image of God is spiritual, but fallen men have become carnal and or, or material, if you will. The image is verbal, but fallen men have become corrupt in their speech. The image of God is physical, but fallen men have become wicked. And so while God's image remains in us, it is totally corrupted. Every part of your being has been corrupted by the fall of man into sin. So there is hope, though, in this. The hope of of your restoration lies here in the Bible and what what we are promised, where we're, we're actually taught in the Bible that you can become a new creation. You can become a new humanity, and you can receive a new mind. And here's just one reference to consider. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So do you see that you can become a, this, this new creation in Christ? All those who put their faith in Christ receive this new nature. What's the second mark of mankind? We've seen the, the greatness of humanity, but here's the second mark. God created mankind with governance. You were created to govern, to rule. Notice verse 26 says that you are to have dominion, it says. By the way, there's the, I forgot to mention, the, the, the imagery of the Trinity there in verse 26 when God uses plural pronouns of Himself there. Plural pronouns, He says, us, our, The Trinity is involved here in creation, and he says, let them, that's humanity, have dominion. And notice he's given a a wide-ranging dominion here. He says, over the fish of the sea, and the birds, and the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Full dominion. You're to govern and rule all the aspects here of of God's creation. They are subordinate to humans. The animal kingdom is not equal and and certainly not superior. By the way, this rule that God's given to us is not based on strength, of course. Uh, Of course, there's many creatures that God has made that are quite stronger than us. For example, elephants are much stronger. Therefore, our dominion is based on the fact that we're just greater than the rest of creation. That's the way God designed it. 
made us greater. So how do we apply this truth? Well, there's a few things we need to think about here, some implications. The, first of all, the animal and plant kingdom should never be regarded as equal or superior, at least in worth to human beings. And uh, some have called this the dominion mandate. Now, only the dominion mandate enables a proper, balanced outlook on the environment. So if you're wondering, why are there even political parties like Greens and activist groups out there like Greenpeace and so forth doing what they do? I mean, they're really genuinely serious into what they're doing. Why? Because they don't understand this truth. They're, they're off balance. Uh, so if we understand what this, this dominion mandate that God has given here, it would give us a proper balance on the environment. It, it would cause us to avoid idolatry in the, in the worship of so-called Mother Earth. Yes, you and I have the right to use animals, plants, and minerals to our benefit. Why? Because God gave you that privilege. But there's also a responsibility that you and I have in this dominion mandate that we are caretakers of all of this creation. God owns it. We're just caretakers. And so we have a responsibility to care for his creation. Now listen, I love the way uh, G.K. Chesterton said this. Look at this quote, quote. The essence of all pantheism, evolutionism, and modern cosmic religion is really in this proposition, that nature is our mother. Unfortunately, if you regard nature as a mother, you discover that she is a stepmother. The main point of Christianity was this, that nature is not our mother, nature is our sister. We can be proud of her beauty, since we have the same father, but she has no authority over us. We have to admire, but not to imitate. End quote. I also like the way Francis Schaeffer, as he's trying to bring balance into, into the extremes here in, in regard to environmentalism, he says, quote, the, Only the Christian has the proper perspective on a tree. He respects it as a tree created by God. He therefore does not condone chopping it down just for the sake of wantingly chopping it down. However, he is also free from pagan sacred grove taboos about nature, so he is quite relaxed about chopping it down to fulfill his need to build a house. At the same time, his Christian duty toward the needs of future generations means he will plant at least another to take its place. End quote. You see the balance there? By the way, that's not a command, but I hope you get the idea of balance here. Right? Use these things for your benefit. God's giving them to you for your benefit. But just uh, widespread destruction is not what God desires. Be a wise caretaker of His environment. Now, another point needs to be made here. There's, there's an implication, underlying implication coming out here. And I want, did you notice here that man's dominion didn't extend to the humans? didn't say anything about fellow man here. So the dominion mandate does not apply spreading it to other human beings. Now this, this truth is important because humans are never to be treated as objects. They're special. 
And this is the key reason why activities such as slavery and abortion are evil. They're evil because we're all made in God's image. We're all equal. You can't go and just treat people as objects. What does this mean for us? It means our dominion here is is that we're responsible caretakers of God's planet. Now, why did God give us dominion? He didn't have to do that, but He did. Well, it's a wonderful gift from God to you. It's a great responsibility, yes, but it's also a great privilege and a gift. It was designed to enable us to enjoy the environment fully and responsibly. Sorry. But there's a third mark here. We see third that God created mankind with gender. He gave us gender. God chose to make us, as we see in verse 27, male and female. Mankind is made of two genders, male and female. Note here, when God made mankind, He made us heterosexual, not homosexual. This is the way God originally designed it, and he hasn't changed his mind on this. God didn't create Adam and Steve. God did not create Eve and Andrea. He made Adam and Eve. So the creation of man here as male and female is showing God's image in at least two ways. Just take note of this here in verse 27. We see that God made us, number one, for personal relationships. Remember, part of his image is... God's a community in the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, they're a community. Guess what? He made you also for community. That's part of His image. Here's what Wayne Grudem said in regard to being made male and female. He says, quote, God did not create human beings to be isolated persons. But in making us in His image, He made us in such a way that we can attain interpersonal union of various sorts in all forms of human society. Interpersonal unity can be deep in the family and also in our spiritual family, the church. Between men and women, interpersonal unity comes to its fullest expression in this age in marriage, where husband and wife become, in a sense, two persons in one. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. This unity is not only a physical unity, it is also a spiritual and emotional unity of profound dimensions. End quote. You have been made to carry on in relationships. Don't isolate yourself, okay? God made you male and female. What's the second way See, God making us with gender here. What's the importance of this? Well, number two, God made us equal in personhood and importance. So just as we look at the Trinity, and the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are equal in their importance, so also God makes us this way. We we are also equal in importance. Men and women have been created by God to be equal in our importance as well as our personhood. So when God created man, he created both male and female in his image. Adam's not the only one created in God's image. Females were also. Notice it's them that were made. Plural them made in God's image here. And so since we're equal in God's image, 
then we're equally important to God and equally valuable to God. And this truth, by the way, should exclude then all feelings of pride, whether you, you're somehow, you feel superior as a female or you might feel superior as a male to females. It should exclude all those prideful feelings. Uh, it should also exclude any inferior feelings you might have of whatever gender God made you. God made you that way, and you need to, to be content with the way God made you. And so any idea out there that somehow one gender or sex is better than the other or one is worse than the other is actually not God's view. It's a worldly view. It's, it's an unbiblical view. Because God says we're equal, just as Jesus is equal to God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is equal to Jesus, and so forth. They're all equal. They have different functions, and so men and women have different functions. Now we see, look at this scripture here, uh, showing the equality of male and female. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, neither is there Jew nor Greek, Neither is there a slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice you're one in Christ Jesus. So, practically speaking here, we must never think that we're second-class citizens somehow. At least in the church, there shouldn't be second-class citizens, because we're all equal. And so according to this, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or whether you're employed or you're the boss and you own the company or or you're a Jew or a Gentile or your skin color is white or black. Uh, it doesn't matter your, your class, you're rich or poor, or if you're, you're healthy or you're not healthy, or if you're, uh, you know, one of these extremely intelligent people or you're a slow learner. God's saying you're all valuable to him. And, you, and we should be equally valuable, and we need to treat each other equally in value. In the church, this is the way it's to be. Sadly, it's just not going to happen in our world. Worldly people, the unbelievers, don't see things the way God sees it. But this is what God expects of His church. We are all one in Christ. Second main point Genesis 1 here tells us is that God also blessed mankind. God blessed mankind. God gave humanity three blessings, in fact. You look at uh, verse 28, it says that God blessed them, that is humanity, mankind. And then God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So let's look at these one at a time. First blessing is children. God blessed mankind with children. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill. All three of those are commands in Hebrew, and they're basically saying the same idea. And here we see a major purpose of marriage is bearing children. It's not the only purpose of marriage. By the way, you can still bear God's image even without children. Okay? You can still bear God's image even as a single person. You are no less human than a married couple, by the way. Remember, Jesus himself was also single. 
Uh, so that doesn't make you any less human. You're still made in God's image. But this is one of the blessings that God gave to mankind as a whole here, not for every individual. And this means that, uh, one of the things it means is that sexual intercourse is God's invention. And by the way, notice this comes before Genesis 3. It predates the fall. So sexual intercourse is not a result of the fall. God invented this. It's his idea. And uh, this is part of God's very good creation. But this is true only in its proper context. This is so important in our culture today. They get the context wrong. Because look what Hebrews 13 verse 4 says. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So what is the proper context for sex? It has to be within a covenant relationship we call marriage. It goes outside of that. God says He is going to judge you because you are sexually immoral and adulterous. Now this does not mean that everybody should marry or that all marriages have to produce children. That's not what God's saying here. But, but having children and filling the earth is part of God's plan for humanity as a whole, not for every individual. So the first blessing is children. The second blessing is leadership. Notice God says in verse 28 that mankind is to subdue his creation and have dominion over it. The idea is rule over, govern his creation. Now some people have called this principle the cultural mandate. You say, well, what is the cultural mandate? Well, I like the way Henry Morris says it in his commentary called the Genesis Record. He says, quote, the cultural mandate, cultural mandate is clearly a very expressive figure of speech for first, intense study of the earth. And then, utilization of this knowledge for the benefit of the earth's inhabitants, both animal and human. Science is man's disciplined study and understanding of the phenomena of this world. Technology is the implementation of this knowledge in the effective ordering and development of the earth and its resources for the greater good of all earth's inhabitants. This includes such fields of human service as engineering, agriculture, medicine, end quote. So that's leadership that God has given to all mankind as a whole. You are to subdue, have dominion over it. The third benefit that God gives as He's blessing mankind here is He gives us food. Praise God for food. I love food. I shouldn't say that. I like food. The temptation would be gluttony. God, notice in verses 29 and 30, though, God says, have them, as he talks to mankind here, have them for food. As he's, he's talking about the, the fruits and the vegetables here, have them for food. God provided food for man here in the form of, well, notice in the beginning, it's the form of vegetables and fruits. So according to the Middle Eastern view of, you know, Moses kind of coming out of the Middle East, Moses writing this book here. Man was created in order to supply food for the gods. They're they're to bring God's food. In contrast to that, the Hebrew God 
he's not like those Middle Eastern gods. He's he's transcendent. God doesn't need food. Uh, he's in need of at least no physical food. God doesn't need to eat. So the granting of food to mankind here is stated in a positive manner. What a blessing. God made you to eat, to enjoy food. He gave you t- taste buds to enjoy the food. By the way, notice there is no direct prohibition proclaiming that you cannot eat meat. There's no direct command here not to eat meat. That's interesting. However, as you look at the text, it is inferred in this particular text here. But later on, we know as well that God says humans are allowed to eat meat. For example, after um, well, God told Noah, he says, every this is Genesis 9, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. I love that verse because that means you and I don't have to be vegetarians. Praise God, I can be a carnivore and I get to eat and enjoy meat. But but here, in the Garden of Eden, in Creation Week, we see that, including the animals, by the way, do you notice the animals? They're not killing each other. They're also eating the, the, the plants, and the vegetation, and the fruits. But we as man, we're at this time as well. But then we come to the third main part of this text, and we see that God then finishes His creation. After six days, God finishes His creation. Now, how do we know He's finished? Well, look what verse 31 says. It says, God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, there's a few things I can just point out to you quickly here. Notice God adds the uh, describing here onto the word good. He didn't do this on the previous days of creation. But this time he says, oh, now it's done. I'm done, so now I'm saying it's very good. He didn't say that about the other days. The other interesting thing is, God says this is the sixth day. Now, this, this distinguishes it from the, all the other days of creation because in the Hebrew, there's a definite article there. So your Bible should have the word the. This distinguishes it from everything else. It is, is it a special day because it is the sixth day. God's declaring, I'm done. I'm completed. So we see, first of all, God thought his creation was very good. Uh, so the whole earth is 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 in complete harmony with God here at this point. There is total peace in in creation. Uh, for example, animals aren't eating killing each other. Uh, man's not killing animals. It, it's just everything's perfect. Total peace and harmony. But sadly, we've we've never known a world like this. Only Adam understood what this was like, but one day every believer is going to live in a perfect world. Praise God. Read the last book in your Bible. We know it's coming. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But how do we know God created, uh, finished His creation? We'll see here, first of all, that God thought He was complete. He thought it was complete, because keep reading in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to notice the words He uses, particularly the verbs. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. 
So he describes them as finished. And all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God says it twice. I'm finished. He says it is finished. In other words, uh, unlike you and me in our work, there's no loose ends to tie up here. Uh, there's, there's no problems that God had to had to somehow fix. Uh, if you've ever done any work, it seems like that's that's the way we are as human beings, right? We we think we're done, and there's oh well, yeah. I'm, I'm this way when I'm doing painting. Like supposedly I finished the painting on my house this past summer, right? But I know that uh, I'm thinking of even things in my head right now. There there are some loose ends that need to be tied up. There are a few problems that need fixed, and that's just the way we are as human beings. But God. When he says he's finished, it's it's just complete, it's perfect, there's no modifications are required. Everything was complete in six days, just as God had planned it. We also see here that God was content. Unlike with stuff I do, I seem to make something, and I'm, it seems like I'm always a little discontent with whatever I do. You know, my painting job was, you know, I'm frustrated with that, or I make something else never seem to get it perfect. It frustrates me. But no, that's not the case with God here. Oh, no. Because in verse 2, God finished the work that He had done, and then He rested from all His work that He had done. So God rested, by the way, not because He's tired or He's exhausted or He needs to take a nap. No, not at all. In fact, He's totally content because the word rested there in verse 2 it means to cease, to stop, to come to an end. It means it is the cessation of work. In my own words, it means that God stopped working because there was nothing left for Him to do. He didn't think He needed to do anything else. So He rests. He stops working. It shows His contentment here. We also see God finish His creation here in verse 3. We see God blessed the seventh day. Verse 3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. This is interesting, because the seventh day, we typically think of Saturday, was designed to be a blessing, not a burden. It was supposed to be a gift from God to man, God didn't need to do this, but he, he did it. He's setting the example, and he set, in fact, the whole week, seven-day week for us here. But This was a gift from God to man. How? Well, subduing the earth and exercising dominion over it is hard work. It's hard work doing this. Therefore, your body must have been designed by God to need a break. God didn't need a break, but He's designed us, and He knows us. He knows we need rest. He knows that our minds need time to take a break, uh, time for meditation, refle reflection, and even our spirits need to be rejuvenated at times. Sadly, fallen man ended up corrupting the Sabbath so that it actually became a huge burden, particularly in Israel. And so it's no wonder when you come to the New Testament and you read about Jesus, 
Jesus refused to keep the Sabbath, at least according to the to the Jewish traditional requirements, because of the, the burden that it had become. Jesus talks about how the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel heaping these heavy burdens on the people that they can't bear. Jesus comes along as he says, Hey, 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 come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said that Sabbath was made for man, not the Sabbath, or this is not the other way around, sorry. It was made for man. But they seem to miss the point. But God also sets this day apart when he says here in verse 3 that he made it holy. Now, in that context there, the word holy means set apart. So God has set apart the seventh day of creation week here. Why did God do this? Well, man's body, mind, and spirit need a break. You need some rest and reflection and rejuvenation. So the principle here of the one in seven days is actually perpetuated here in the first day rest. So the Lord's Day we see in the New Testament becomes now an opportunity for us to worship and to to think and to rest. First day rest commemorates a finished redemption as Hebrews reminds us that it's actually celebrating a victorious resurrection. Seventh-day rest commemorates the, the finished creation. So whenever you get to Saturday, I hope, I hope you think about that. Celebrate what, what God has done in His creation. It's, it's, it's celebrating this perfect environment that God made. But the concept of one in seven remains. It remains. But the day has changed from the seventh day to the first day. It's changed from Saturday to Sunday. It's changed from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day. And that's why you see even Christ's own apostles themselves worshiping on the Lord's Day, which we call Sunday. Now the Bible makes it clear that that Mosaic Sabbath was was no longer applicable, if you will, for the New Covenant. For example, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. That's Colossians 2.16 for reference. Christ is superior in so many ways. And that's had, because of Christ, it's had an effect on the church and, and even, even the religious system of Israel. So why does the church now gather on Sunday? church began worshiping on the first day of the week because it commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ came and, and, and ushered in this new covenant. Thank God you don't have to live under that old covenant anymore. Uh, all, that, all that Sabbath stuff and, the, and the, the rituals and so forth, they were pointing to something else. They were just a, a shadow of things to come as Hebrews reminds us. And so, as you come to every Sunday, yes, remember creation. Remember that God made it perfect. He finished it. rested. But every Sunday is also a special day where we're to come to Christ. We're to worship God. We're to remember His resurrection. It's a precious time where we come together 
And so you remember what Hebrews 10 says, we come together not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but we, we come, we exhort one another to love and good works. And so may, may the creation have an effect upon you. May it cause you to worship our great God, our, the master designer, the great creator of, of all things, the entire universe. May he be praised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are the creator of it all. You made it exactly as you wanted it to be, and it was very good, and you rested because you were done working. Nothing else you wanted to do. We're thankful we can see that here. We're thankful for the, the height of your creation week is mankind. And we are made in your image. May we understand what it means to be made in your image and all the implications of that and, and, what, and who I am and how I am to treat my fellow human beings. May this truth be sinking deep into our hearts. Know that it is to be worked out in our lives, our everyday lives. It should be worked out in our government and even when it comes to moral issues of life. May we speak this theological truth into others' lives. They would know who they are and how they are to, to respond to other people. Thank you for making this this way. May we understand the responsibility of, of the dominion mandate, this environment that you've given to us, that we are just your caretakers. May we live in it in a way that's pleasing to you, to, to, to you and be wise caretakers of everything that you own. Thank you for allowing us to do that. Thank you for giving us meat to eat and fish to eat and birds to eat and, and, and yummy fruits and vegetables to eat. You've been so gracious in making us relationships, male and female. You we're not the same. Thank God for differences. I'm glad there there are differences, and but may we understand that we are also equal. May we treat each other as such. May we uh, confess our sin of racism and prejudice that we we might have, and understand that the image of God even affects our view of our fellow man. Here, there is, there none of us no none of us are superior to another or inferior to anybody else. We're all equally made in your image. May we believe these truths and live them out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.